Welcome to Man Reads Monday. I am Aaron Ventura. He is Jacob Rush. Let's get to work. Jacob, what are we working through today? Today, we're in part two of Rory Grove's Durable Trades. Family centered economies that have stood the test of time. And today, we are getting into the actual trades. The trades. So, we did all that introductory stuff, which was fine and fun. Although, actually, before we get into the actual trades, there is this key finding section. And Perhaps my biggest criticism of the book is the numbering of the chapters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, because, because of this key findings, the actual number of the trade and the chapters are one off, which is extremely annoying. So it's like chapter two, number one, Shepard. Yeah. And you're like, wait a second. You could have just called key findings prologue. Sorry, yeah. Rory. We're being critical so here. maybe in the next version. The update or revised. Yes. We just go like prologue or preface or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, That's so let's really talk about this this initial section. What so did he find? Food, fiber, and shelter. And this is actually, I think, one of the most interesting data points to me in this whole book. Hmm. One that I, I was like, I, I need to write this down because I want to remember this. So there's these little pie graphs on page 48. And uh, it says, in 1901, the average U.S. household allocated... 80% of its budget to basic necessities. And what qualifies as a basic necessity? That's like food, shelter, and clothing. Yeah. And then here's the break breakdown. 44% was spent on food, 14% on clothing, and 23% on shelter. And see like the food price, uh, or the food percentage is enormous. Right. Um, and then you have next to it, household expenditures for 2015. And it's really interesting seeing how this has changed. So uh, the total portion that is allocated to basic necessities is down to 50%. So it's a 30% drop. But look at how they are apportioned now. So this is, I guess, probably the average, and it's probably average now in 2021 as well. So your average U.S. consumer spends 14% of their income on food, 3% on clothing, and 33% on shelter. Jacob, yeah. what do you make of these numbers? Well, on the one hand, you know, you can attribute, yeah, ask a question, what do you attribute this to? And it could be, like we've talked about, some of the blessings of the Industrial Revolution, yeah. right? Food is cheaper now. Yeah. It's more readily available. You Clothes is super cheap. Clothes, right? Three, yeah. Three 3%, I mean, although now there's all these like- <laughs> Bougie lines. Yeah, bougie <laughs> lines. There's you Stitch know, fix. yoga pants for your babies <laughs> kind of stuff. <laughs> Stay away from Ooh. that. Yeah, that's bad. That's bad juju. But uh, so that's one thing is that some of the actual blessings of the Industrial Revolution. And yet, on the flip side, with sort of wealth comes the temptation 50% of your income on other. And I guess if you think through your budget, like think of my monthly budget, that makes actually a lot of sense. You know, you've got your rent payment, you know, which maybe. Uh, 25%, although D Dave Ramsey says don't go above 25%. Yeah, that's the max for Dave. That's the max. So, yeah, whoever, if you're in the 33% shelter pie, then you're you shame. You need a total money maker. You got to go back. <laughs> go back a few episodes. We'll get it. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. Think about the other things, you know, whether it's insurance or gas, um, you know, I'm trying to think memberships fees that we have, gym memberships, things like that. Most of our most of our monthly paycheck goes towards the non-essential things in life. Yeah, one of the things that we've talked about before is how expensive healthcare is in the US, even just right now compared to other nations. So, yeah. the US spends so much on health 
related things. So there's something clearly broken, and that would be an interesting percentage to know. Yeah. Um, uh, the one that I thought was interesting is shelter going up. <laughs> so people used to spend 23% on shelter. Yeah. They were they were on that total money makeover, Dave's, Dave's plan, but now it, it's above. And so I think there's probably all sorts of Housing. interesting factors yeah. that go that go into this. And and I think it's uh there's a question here um from like the macroeconomic perspective in terms of what is the the goal. Yeah. So uh, you'd think basic necessities are the kinds of things that we'd want to be readily available to everyone and we we just consider this raising the standard of living. So you'd say the the average standard of living in America is way higher than the average standard of living in a lot of other countries. Right. And how can we continue to to elevate that? Um, but I think this is worth keeping an eye on if some of these change. One of the things I, I noticed, and, and we're going to get to this when we talk about probably shepherding, is uh, the section on the cost of a gallon of milk. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, that's, or actually, sorry. That's, that's right, right in here. here. Yeah. yeah. So th- there's this interesting section on uh, where he says, even accounting for modern industrial efficiencies, without government subsidies, the price of a gallon of milk would be over $8 today. Historically, as a percentage of household expenditures, the real cost of milk is closer to $20 <laughs> per gallon Oof. in today's dollars. Mm. I'm not suggesting that we will see grocery store stock with $20 per gallon milk anytime soon. I am, however, suggesting that the prices we see today for many basic necessities are unsustainably low. Mm. So I, I Googled around. Or actually, I duck, duck, goed around because I don't Google anymore. Wow. Do you, yeah. Is that Brave? Or yeah. is that different than Brave? Yeah, I use, yeah through Brave. Oh, okay. You can, well, you can, Brave is oh, the browser. Is the browser and the duck, And then go. the search engine is duck, duck, go. So <laughs> shout out to the rebellion. Run from big tech. Yeah. Uh, so I tried to look this up. And it actually, I didn't realize that it is this extremely complicated question about how to price milk or uh, what the price should be. And there's this article I read, and it says, you know, there's only five people in the U.S. who know how milk is priced, and four of them are dead. That's kind of like this joke. And I started reading this article. I'm like, okay, this is way too complicated. I don't have time or the interest to want to read this. (laughs) Milk is pricey, yeah, yeah. The occasion of this article where a gallon of milk could cost $8, I think was back in 2013 when there was a – what they were calling it, a, a debt cliff or a uh, – they, they had some agricultural bill that needed to get passed. And yeah. There was debate over whether it was going to get passed. I'm guessing it did because I don't think milk <laughs> shot up. But – What is it now? Is it, you pay three fifty five bucks. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. See, I never buy gallons of milk. <laughs> milk oh. is kind of gross to me. I, oh, th- I think milk's kind of gross. So wow. the only time I'll have it is like cereal on occasion. <laughs> and when it comes to coffee – I only use cream. Yeah, that's true. Like we have half and half, but half and half now that I my palate is so high class on this yeah. cream. Yeah. Half and half is just like garbage to me. It's like Heavy whipping cream is expensive too for yeah. just like a pint of it. It's yeah. Like seven bucks. Well, well this is why you got to go to Winko because Winko has it for like four fifty nine. And so I okay. just, if you come to my house, anybody, you come to my house, <laughs> I'll make you some tea, I'll make you some coffee, and we got that thick heavy mm. whipping cream Mm-mm-mm. from Winko. 
That's good stuff. How do we get here? <laughs> um, price of milk, eight bucks. Price of milk. Anyways, so his whole point is that he says, should the prevailing economic supports ever falter, those possessing skills in producing food, clothing, and shelter will again be in a position to prosper greatly. So this is going back to that pyramid yeah. and the inverted pyramid and saying, okay, there are all sorts of things that are keeping prices like uh, prices of milk, prices of crops and agriculture, artif- he, he's saying artificially low. Yeah. So there's government intervention subsidies that artificially lowers the price of these things. And uh, we don't want to always be reliant on government intervention for basic necessities. Yeah. So because it's so basic, you don't want it to be as vulnerable. And so that's kind of his argument for why he wants people to consider uh, what, tr- what trades are out there and what ones uh, are more resilient to these kinds of economic conditions. Sweet. Let's talk a little bit about success factors before we hop into the five. Take us there. Uh, take you there. So he's going to, right at the outset, talk about these success factors, right? Because it's not just this automatic, hey, if you are a shepherd, you will make buku bucks. Right? There are other factors that come into play, just like with anything, that are going to make you more liable to succeed. What are the commonalities between that? And so he lists a couple here, and they're actually just really great principles in general, whether or not you adopt his, these particular trades. Um, great financial, pro, almost proverbial business principles. Yeah, this, these are great. Yeah. So one, I don't know if we just want to hit them, have a passion for the work. Pretty uh, self-explanatory. Be excited about it if you if it's a drag to drag yourself to the office every day or to whatever it is, you're probably not going to do very well. Yeah. Two, seek mentors. Um, so we'll see this over and over, especially the more technical a trade is or the more um, the, with the higher uh, entry bar, which takes some craftsmanship, yeah. mentors are going to become more and more important. Yeah, um, apprenticeship is going to be the path for a lot of people rather than the four-year degree, depending on yeah. these trades. And so a mentor is going to be that person you that is indispensable to even getting into the some of these industries. Yeah. And you've got work toward ownerships, right? So just saying if you uh, own the business, you're able to obviously choose <laughs> choose your own wage. You have all the perks that come with that. Um, and so at, even if your apprenticeships takes you through, you know, wage slavery, as Wiley would talk about, um, the, your goal should be to work for yourself. Avoiding debt, <laughs> see Dave Ramsey, yep. uh, build trust one customer at a time. Um, so this is like customer service almost. Um, having, uh, Being honest and transparent with the people who buy your product. Um, and this gets to a later principle in a second. Let your work speak for itself. Part of, part of the principle of trust is they trust your product. You're actually producing a quality product. Focus on repeat business. So um, don't treat customers as if they're expendable because um, as everybody knows regulars especially if you're in a in the food service yeah they account for a ton of your business yeah you cannot survive without them yeah. period practice multiple overlapping trades we'll we'll talk about this especially as we're <clears throat> you know as we're trying to figure out how do we appropriate some of these into our own lives is that a lot of these have overlapping skill sets yeah. and then think generationally the whole point of this how do we keep this within the family and how do we pursue vocations that we can teach and train our children to do as well. Yeah, I think this is just really good advice. If you are a college student right now, and let's say you're not in a liberal arts uh, 
degree, you're at some public university <gasps> or something like Sorry. that. Sorry, <laughs> it's okay. Um, I mean, I remember the paralysis of students picking their major because they feel like they're picking the path for the rest of their life, whether they're going to go pre-med or law mm. or engineer, whatever they do. And then, you know, they realize, oh, I actually hate accounting or I yep. actually hate doing this. I should have gone. And, and you ended up wasting money, wasting time to figure out what you wanted to do. And so yep. I think as, as we are, especially as Christians, we're asking questions like, what has God given me the gift and the desire to do? I think you yeah. kind of summarize it in that way. And then the third one would be what opportunities are there? Yeah. So gifts, desire, and opportunities. Will people pay me to do this? Yeah. <laughs> or, and, yeah. Yeah. And if, and if those are there, then I think you can kind of move on to thinking some of these other thinking of these other questions like uh, design your business around your family, not the other way around. So that's a good question to think about. Yeah. Uh, I was just talking to uh, a student earlier today who wants to uh, possibly pursue being a doctor. And so we're talking about some of these principles and, and I just told him, you know, think about as we will get to, because I think physician is uh, one of these trades that's in here, thinking about what could your kid actually do? Um, maybe nothing. We talked, we were joking around with yeah. the lawyer yep. thing. Hi, Kenny. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, yeah. yeah, if you're pursuing law or a lawyer, what exactly uh, can your kids do? What is your vision for your home life, your vision for your marriage? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of guys, you're thinking about the kind of woman that you want to marry. Well, if you're going to be choosing uh, to be a shepherd and you're wanting to be working the land and have your wife doing that, well, you better make sure your wife's up for that or you're picking the kind of woman yeah. that is interested in that kind of thing. So, yeah. important question to ask when you're dating is, is there, somebody, is there a vocation that you could not just deal with, whether it's like emotionally, you know, uh, dangers involved, right? If, yeah. Are you a high-stress person? Would this vocation be a source of contention in your marriage? That's totally. Big, yeah. Yeah. Huge deal. So let's get into these first five trades. And this is kind of a interesting book for us to try to like podcast through. So <laughs> I thought what we would do is just kind of make a few general comments on each of these. And if there's anything we thought was interesting, funny, noteworthy, uh, we can point it out. So, uh, so I'll start by just giving mm. you some of the stats on each of these. Cause I like, I like knowing the numbers on this stuff. Yeah. So there are currently over 1 million livestock farms. And do you know how big the livestock industry is? Big as in size or yeah. acreage or a hundred and eighty four billion. So that's the that's the industry size. And I, I like this. A starter herd of four ewes purchased for fifteen hundred dollars can multiply to sixty breeding ewes within five years. Are you saying ewes? Ewes. It's ewes. <laughs> ewes. <laughs> and you can sell the male lambs along the way for seventy uh, for thirty seven thousand mm. dollars. Mm. Wow. And then he has this little line, you know, try getting that in the stock market. Yeah. So, uh, but that, that is pretty cool. I didn't think about yeah. uh, risk, reward, return when it comes to something like the use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what you can sell them along the way. Because it, it's easy to do that with like stocks. It says, here's the yield. Here's their track record. Yep. But I don't have mm -hmm. any of that for sheep. Right. I, I don't right. know what that is. So it's just cool to know that, okay. Oh, this is what a sheep is going for. Here's yeah. the market value of sheep. Ah, boom, I just got two sheep. Boom. 
Like yep. that's yeah, it's cash money. And then the, uh, the other kind of relevant number here, so the income, the median income, which he says this is a skew, uh, skewed. There's ewes and they're skewed. They're skewed by corporate farming operations, but just under seventy k. So that's kind of your median wage, and that and you say that's pretty good good wages there. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on shepherd? So I mean, one of the questions, especially in our modern sensibilities, like okay, what even is a shepherd, right? So he, he kind of gives these little um, modern equivalency terms, and he says rancher, livestock farmer, dairyman, right? So he's thinking of kind of these bigger livestock kind of animals. And it, it's just important as he goes into these other, because we kind of think, oh, shepherd and farmer, we equivocate, right? Because we don't know what it means. But here he's talking particularly about animals, livestock. Yeah. Up next is the farmer. What did you like about the mm. farmer? Well, I love, he keeps talking about like the family-centeredness, and both this one and the one before scores 100% on the family-centered. Yeah. And his point is to say, I think, I think he says this about the farmer, or no, it's about the gardener, but similarly with the farmer, um, that we were made for this, right? God took man out of the soil, and um, whether you're a farmer or not, you have some natural... Um, orientation toward the ground, uh, which means you can teach. It's, it's your future destination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's your home. <laughs> Where did you come from? Where did you go? Yeah. You know, it's it's. Uh, so he talks about uh, the family centeredness being 100. percent You can, um, you can have your kids um, help you out in the farm. You can teach your kids to drive a tractor. Right? Those they're not just cute little John Deere things. No, you can actually show them how it's done. Yeah, he says farming is the trade upon which all others depend. And this is just like a basic reality of all civilizations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we talked about this before, but if there is no farming, if there is no food, there is nothing else. So when you're going back to the pyramid, Mm -hmm. like this is the bottom. This This is the foundation. And in order to be able to work in any other, to be a teacher or a metalsmith or a woodworker, Everyone has to eat and someone has to do the farming. And we do regard it as a blessing that uh, we don't all have to do this. Yeah. That there is a, is a now a minority workforce, and I don't mean that in terms of ethnicity. Right. But where he says like in times past, uh, when you're looking at the income data, he mentions that we don't even have farming wages until uh, kind of industrial revolution was in full swing. Because it was just so normal, like everyone did it. Yeah. And I think that is one of the arguments for why it is worth recovering some of this to recognize how much generational knowledge we've lost right. um, in, in such a short amount of time. I think also, too, we're about to go to midwife, so we'll take a turn. But, yeah. um, you know, one of the <coughs> objections or maybe to the book is to saying, oh, like this is just unrealistic prescriptions, right? Are you saying that? I should tell the guy who wants to go into computer engineering, he needs to scrap his plans and to become a a farmer, right? Or a a shepherd. It's like, no. Um, But I think what Rory's pointing, Rory, can I? Sorry, Mr. Groves. (laughs) Edit that out. You know, what what Groves is pointing out is sort of, these are the things that are last, and these are the things that are worth bringing into your household in some capacity, right? So I think one practical application would be, Okay, if you if you can do it, um, find a way to have animals, right? A lot, a lot of people around here have chicken coops. Um, that's sort of like probably the lowest um, cost, lowest risk entry into 
um, you know, shepherding, livestock. Yeah. Similarly with farmer. It's like everyone needs eggs. Everyone needs eggs. Yeah. Are there little ways that you can become more resilient by adopting some of these principles? And then maybe you do feel gifting and a calling to do this and pursue these things. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting, the distinction between the conventional farms and the organic farms when you mm-hmm. look at what's actually profitable. So oh, we, yeah. live, we live out here on the Palouse, and so we live in farm country. Oh, yeah. And it's beautiful. You go on these drives. And one of the things I've always been kind of confused by is how kind of ugly and run down a lot of the houses are that seem to be located on these farms. And so I just think I, – I would just think this person has hundreds of acres of land – and yet these pretty ugly, yeah. often run down or even sometimes abandoned houses, maybe they, there's something next to it. So I was like, these people just must not be very profitable or maybe they have houses elsewhere. I was just kind of curious because uh, the, the land to kind of house size ratio seemed to be so off. Mm. And, and this actually helped explain it because um, it says, at current market prices on very good land, it would take 300 acres to match the median household income in the U.S. That's crazy to me. And he says, not including the cost of land, machine, machinery, or outbuildings, which would require initial outlays of $1.5 to $2 million. And that makes sense when you think about how some of the government intervention involved, right? Subsidies to keep prices down low. People say, well, it's a blessing to farmers. Well, kind of, except for the fact that what are you doing is you're lowering the value of their product, which means they have to do more, right? They have to do more. People have to actually want to buy the corn. And now we're so, the thing is, now we are so used to extremely low prices of a lot of these things Mm -hmm. that if, say, milk went up to eight, dollars or twenty dollars or if eggs so that there was a shortage in any of these things the shock would be immediate yeah and we would have to go through an entire recalibration of our grocery budget right what we what we think is like i don't even like i don't even think when i buy eggs i think like it's like a dollar yeah they're like two dollars cheap and and so i imagine it costs a lot more money to actually have chickens and raise them and the time and the you know, and and those Feed seem them. like relatively low maintenance. Like chickens seem relatively low maintenance to me. I wouldn't be intimidated by that. <laughs> but I would like, I would want to do it because I would want the actual eggs to be yummier or better or or some right. way. But it's like eggs right now are so cheap. Why would I own chickens? You know, yeah. milk right now is so cheap. Why would why would I have cows? And so yeah. th- this helps kind of explain why some mm. of those are there. Mm-hmm. And, but it does make you wonder, like, what happens if if these some of these were to go away. Um, Organic farms, which is probably uh, more common if you're actually like want to do this, you pretty, he says, you pretty much can't do conventional farming. And after reading about it, I'm like, why would you want to? I'd way rather have an organic farm where I'm selling directly to consumers or restaurants or Mm co-ops, people that I actually know have those relationships rather than these kind of industrial huge acreage farms. Yeah. Um, if you, uh, there's this show on Netflix called Chef's Table. And if you, it's like one of my favorite shows. And it's just chefs mm. who are like the best in the world. And it kind of does these really artsy, well-told documentary stories of their kind of journey, what they do, how they do it, their kind of idea. And <clears throat> I believe it's in the first season, might be even one of the first 
one or two episodes mm-hmm. where they talk about uh, sourcing their ingredients. And for the chefs, I mean, ingredients are like everything. Some of these guys are going hunt, you know, out into the in- Indies and finding mm-hmm. uh, new ingredients and experimenting with them. But what, one of the things I noticed after I've watched all of these episodes, some of them multiple times, is that uh, the ones who really care about the taste and the quality, they all have these one-to-one relationships and often have even their own farms mm. that are exclusive to the restaurant. So you imagine, like, your restaurant has an ex- a farm that is exclusively for that. And then they will bring people out to it. They're teaching about kind of sustainable farming practices. And you're able to taste. Mm. Uh, their whole argument is that when you when done right, it actually tastes a lot better. Because yeah. they're chefs. They want the most flavorful food. And, and people are willing to, to pay that. Mm. And so that, to me, is actually, like, I could get a passion for that. Yeah. Because you're seeing the fruit, literally, of of your labors, and you're having a more personal connection mm. to it. So, yeah, chef's table, go watch Sh- it. Chef's table. <laughs> All right, let's talk about midwives. Ooh. Tell us about midwives, Jacob. Well, I don't quite understand what midwife... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, midwives are making a comeback, he says. Which yes. actually, you know, even out here in Moscow, um, a handful of people that we know yep. who are midwives, they've gone to midwifery school, um, or they're doulas, they assist it. Yep. And essentially, the midwives are people who help, typically ladies, actually almost exclusively ladies. Yeah, I, have, I don't know of any mid-husbands. <laughs> <laughs> mid-guys. Mid-guys. <laughs> Mid-dudes. Um, who assist ladies giving birth. Yeah. Uh, and actually, one of the, you know, uh, what's interesting is it's kind of rides that um, that divide in our country. You know, in certain states you've got homeschooling, which is outlawed. Yeah. Because there's this fear of decentralizing it when you know when the government doesn't have their fan uh, their fingers in it. Oh, how do we how do we maintain control and how yeah. do we know people are doing it rightly, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, with midwives, uh, there are certain states which have very severe or uh, restrictions or completely outlawed yeah. this practice, which is funny because people have been helping people give birth for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> since the first one. Since I guess the, I guess well, you could say Adam was Adam the first <laughs> midwife. That's the real. That's the real question. This is a deep question. Did some deep exegesis to figure that one out. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought it was really interesting that this is like the highest paid trade, pretty much in this book. Full-time midwives handling yeah. six to nine births per month can, can earn well above 300 grand, 300,000 grand. Yeah. So it's depending on workload, midwives can surpass even physicians in a net take-home pay. And I thought, that is really cool, especially given how easy this is to get into. It's, re- it's relatively easy. And there's a, there's a few different licensings, uh, licensing agencies that you can go through. So in only 30 states, uh, they're... Uh, what are called uh, direct entry midwives are mm. legal. So 20 states, uh, it's illegal. And then there's this kind of certified nurse midwife, the CNM, which is actually allowed in all 50 states. But uh, so I th- when I first heard about people yeah. having like home births yeah. or natural births, I just was like, but why would you do that? It sounds like when you go to the hospital, painful. Yeah. And then uh when my uh, wife got pregnant, we started thinking about like, oh, what are we gonna do? Uh, my uh, a lot of my friends here in Moscow have all had home births, and then I knew the lady who's in our 
in our church. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were preparing, I, I we, we met with her to do the kind of initial interview, like tell us about this. What like I have no, I don't know anything about birth. Um, I know I was born, and that and that's about it. <laughs> I was not. I mean, I was there, but yeah. I don't have any memory of it. Yeah, and walking through, like, oh, okay, we get to be at home, and here's how a lot of the interventions at the hospital can escalate into unnecessary interventions that can cause complications. And I've and I've seen that with yeah. people that I know who've had hospital births. But the one for me that really stuck out was the cost. Oh yeah, right. So the the cost, the average cost for a a midwife birth is three to six thousand dollars, and if you go to a hospital, I mean, it can easily, easily get over twenty k, sometimes way more than that. And if you have Samaritan's Ministries, yes, a thousand dollars copay. Yep, for um, yeah home births. That's one. That's the one I have right now. So, uh, so the the midwife that we sponsor use, a Samaritan's Ministry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So like the midwife that we use, she charges like two grand. So she's like bel- below average cost. Wow. And it was there's like, also a lot of births in this town. Yeah, so. there's a lot of births in this town. But like, I like that I know the lady. She's a Christian lady. Yeah. She's a godly woman. And I see her every Sunday at church. Yeah. And like, that's part of that trust. Yeah. And, it, and also a bunch of my friends who have had great experiences with the same person and her doula. Like that's part of the trust building. Mm-hmm. Whereas, so like my older sister, they just had their baby over in, so they live in Washington in Seattle and, and she herself had some health complications. So they needed to do it in, in a hospital. But she was just telling me the story of how there's just constantly all these different people coming in and out. Some that you have never met before for this extremely like kind of, I don't know, intimate moment in your life. Yeah, And I'm like, I liked that I knew everyone in the room, I mean, I was helping uh, as much as a man can help <laughs> you your wife dying. give birth uh, when she's like in the birthing pool and stuff like that. And to do it in our home and then you don't have to be like, wait to be discharged from the hospital. So there's all these things that it just totally made made sense to me. And how am yeah. I talking about uh, ho- home births? So I, I have a great personal appreciation for yeah. midwifery. I do I do love the comment about its resiliency. It says, well, one, because there's always going to be babies. But two, midwi- it says uh, midwifery is nearly impervious to economic cycles and may even see an increase during recessions. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, hmm. when people got no money, yep. tend to have more babies. Yep. Moving on to the gardener. And mm. I think the key here that I wanted to highlight was how is a gardener different from a farmer? And this is how gardeners typically do not rely on heavy machinery. They tend to uh, uh, they tend established crops like orchards, tree farms, vineyards, etc. And some of them, you know, start plantings from mm. seed for sale in nurseries. And this is a seventy eight billion dollar industry. Yeah, he even gives little like <clears throat> again subcategories. You've got you know think of an arborist, a vine dresser, a landscaper, a flower farmer. Yeah. So they're different sort of manifestations of the the print you know primary trade. Yeah, sculpting the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one here is woodworker, and then next week we'll also get to one that kind of overlaps with this, mm-hmm. and that is a carpenter. And kind of the the difference or the distinction he makes between a woodworker and a carpenter is that. With uh, carpentry, dimensions and cuts can be off by a little. Uh, with work, with woodworking, it must be exact. So it's a bit more of an artistic thing. You know, if you're just cutting two by, two by fours or taking, uh, you know, straight up trees and into lumber, 
that's one thing. Um, but this, you're actually delivering a final product. And this, this is a crazy number to me. Cabinet making is a $54 billion industry. So, I mean, I guess every home Think needs about that next time cabinets. <laughs> and so if you're a cabinet maker... Uh, Make some bank. Yeah. Here's my final comment on, mm. on woodworking. So I'm a man who loves books. As there you, you are. Know. I mean, in this room, I have bookshelves in here. But you know what I'm tired of, Jacob? Not having enough space for your books. Well, I'm tired of that. Okay. You know what I'm tired of? I'm tired of particle board. Ooh. I'm tired <clears throat> of those bookshelves. Cheap, square co- square yeah. coats. <laughs> Scare I'm, quotes. I'm tired of stuff that breaks. I want, I want furniture mm. that's heavy, that's hard to move, furniture that takes give. all my bros to lift. <laughs> I, you know, and especially, Wait a second, I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I want some heavy furniture that's mm. going to last. I want solid wood. Oak. Yeah. Mahogany. Yeah. And I can understand why people don't build these things because wood is expensive yeah. to get. But man, if you have like a nice book case, a book bookshelf, like that's, that's a beautiful thing and it's housing beautiful things. So if you, if you're out there and you're a woodworker, and you want to make me some beautiful bookshelves, please message me. I don't know what I can afford, um, but but if it is nice, if it's the kind of thing mm. that will last me a lifetime, I would way rather yeah. buy it from someone that I'm supporting. If it's going to be the kind of legacy furniture that I will legacy take gift. with me forever. Yeah, that's good. I, I, on the other hand, was more captivated by the gardener chapter uh, because my dad he has a garden in his house, and he he loves to take in care. In his house? No. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those like Roman. Like, like is your dad a drug dealer? <laughs> <laughs> a garden? <laughs> um, no. Um, so, but he's you know he's done that for a long time, and he really yeah. enjoys it. And just think like that's that's manageable, right? You can grow grapes yeah. in your backyard. You can make wine. Uh, I just th- I just thought that was so cool. You could grow flowers. You could, there's so many things that you could do yeah. with just the earth if you just put a little time into it. So if you've got resources on gardening, send them send them my way. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be interested in figuring out how to do it. And send me the bookshelves. That's right. Arrange <laughs> for that. All right. Well, Jacob, what should people do this week? Well, whatever you do this week, make sure that you get that wisdom, you build that house, you rule that big fat belly, and you stack dollars. <laughs> Got all choked up. You, st- you stacked out. Let's for those grandbabies. For those grandbabies. Peace. Peace.